So if you would, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to be there in just a moment. But this morning, I really just want to set up the year, what we're going to be doing, why this matters, and why it's important to be a part of this, and and then how things will flow. But as I was thinking about men's discipleship and why this is so important, hey, a couple of things, these kinds of Bible studies have been formative in my own life. I remember when I first came to Countryside in 07, um, I went to a Bible study similar to this that Tom Pennington taught in his home on Friday mornings at 6 a.m., and it was uh, life-giving and life-changing for me. And so as soon as we started here at, at North Lake, I knew I wanted to do something like this that was open to all of our men that we could just meet on a regular basis to push one another to grow in our faith, uh, to push one another to lead well in our homes, in the workplace, and in the church. It, leadership, as you know, starts with the men. men has, God has given men the task and the responsibility and the privilege of leading in different spheres of life. And so it's important that we take that role seriously and we need one another in that task. And so this is designed to foster that, to foster relationships among us as men uh, that we might push each other to grow. But specifically, as I was thinking through different passages of Scripture that get to the heart of why this is necessary, I kept coming back this week to Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to start by reading in Genesis chapter 2 the the creation account. Obviously, Genesis 1 gives the broader perspective of the creation account. Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of, of man specifically. And so I'm going to read for context, beginning in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now no shrub or the, of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and in the tree and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now jump down to verse fifteen. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make for him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's a familiar account. It's a review, I know, of things you already know. But I want to have that context in mind of how God created man as we get into the fall in chapter 3, where I want us to focus. So really, the verses we're going to focus on in our time this morning are verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3. So let's read those together now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, as we think about verses 1 to 6 specifically, we can break it into three easy parts. We have the deceiver, the deception, and the deceived. The deceiver, the deception, and the deceived. And this is a familiar passage, and I'm not going to give a full-length message on this this morning, but I want to highlight a few key aspects of this that play into why this time together is so crucial for us today. Obviously, we have the deceiver starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. This is Satan coming in the physical form of a snake, and he begins to have a conversation with Eve. By the way, that doesn't mean that we should think that every animal had the ability to talk before the fall. Uh, this seems to be a super supernatural event. The snake is speaking because the snake is indwelt with Satan, and it's Satan speaking through the snake, which is probably what catches Eve's attention. Uh, this most likely was not a normal occurrence. And this snake begins to speak to her and poses a question. And there are several observations that we can note about this conversation that takes place between the serpent and the woman. Observation one, notice that Satan reverses God's created order. God created man, then woman, and then he put them over the animals, right? We think about the hierarchy of of authority that God set on the earth. Man was to be the leader of his wife, and they then, as mankind, were to be leaders over creation. Yet Satan comes as a snake, as an animal, to the woman. And so he's usurping the order that God has created on purpose. Observation number two, Satan reverses... God's words. Notice what he says here. He says, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's actually the exact opposite of the way that God taught Adam and Eve about their life there in the garden. Instead, God originally focused on the freedom that Adam had. In, in chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, he says, Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to cultivate it. And the Lord God, in verse 16, commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. The way that God spoke was for their good. He said, Look what I've made for you. 
And this is for, for you to eat. But Satan flips that around and says, has God said you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Of course, this is backwards. Eve rightly recognizes the snake's mistake and inaccuracy, and she seeks to correct him, and she does, except with one addition. Notice the way she corrects the serpent. She says, from the tree, fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which in the, is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, God didn't say anything about touching the tree. This is something perhaps we, we don't know. We don't want to read too much into this. Maybe Adam and Eve had decided, you know, we should just stay away from that tree so we don't eat from it. Maybe we should just change that prohibition to don't even touch it. We, we don't know exactly what that is. But notice that Satan is getting her to think on the negative. He's getting her to think on the restrictions that God has put on her life rather than the blessings and the freedoms and the gifts that God has put into her life. But then Satan goes even further because in response to her quote from God, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Notice what he says, verse 4, you surely will not die. This is, this is Satan calling God a liar. The third observation, Satan calls God a liar. In the Hebrew text, this is emphatic. That's why they were add the word surely in English to convey the idea, you surely will not die. God has, has not told you the truth. And then he goes on to not only call God a liar, but to impose evil motives on why God supposedly has told this falsehood. Notice he goes on to say, for God knows, here's why he lied to you, Eve. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. What he says is, Eve, let me explain to you why God has lied to you about this. He's lied to you about this because he has good things he's trying to keep from you. He has evil motives, and that's why he's withholding the fruit of the tree. He attacks God's character. What's interesting here is, as he accuses God of being the one who's keeping good things from them and, and being a liar, he's actually flipping the characterization of himself with God, right? Who's actually lying, who actually has evil motives. Satan does. And yet he's flipping that around in Eve's mind for her to think about his character as if his character is the character of God and vice versa. And then she go, he goes on to tell... Uh, a half-truth. He says, when you eat of this, you're going to be like God and your eyes are going to be opened. It's a fifth observation. He tells a half-truth. Now, it is true that when they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they do gain new knowledge. But what they find, sadly, is it's not the same kind of knowledge that God has because God is untouched by evil. He doesn't have experiential knowledge of sin because he's never sinned. They gain knowledge of good and evil as participants in it and now find themselves bound to that evil. So even this is, is not actually accurate. <coughs> the promise doesn't add up. So we have the, this is the deception of the deceiver. And now we have the deceived, which is Eve here in verse 6. When the woman saw that the, true, the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. 
Now, this is a formula here that's laid out in Scripture that's really the same pattern by which we are all tempted to sit in today. You remember in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen to verse 16. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, <coughs> excuse me, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Notice that list, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. We see all of those in this temptation to Eve here in the garden. Eve saw that the, it was good. It, it drew the lust of the eyes. There was something about it that was attractive. It, it, it excited the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was good to eat. And then there was also something about it that promised to give her wisdom she didn't have, the boastful pride of life. I could be like God. And she took it and she ate. This is the pattern that continues now when it comes to sin. So now the sin is complete. She takes the fruit and she eats. As, <coughs> as we learn elsewhere in Scripture, this is the, the cycle that James lays out for us. Now she has, sin has conceived and brought forth death. But here's the key point that I'm driving at. Strangely, throughout this entire account, account so far, someone is missing. Where is Adam? Where's Adam? Where is her head? Where is her protector? Where is the one that God gave to her to protect her, to hold the line? Where is the one that God created first to be the leader who received first this command that we're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Where is he? Maybe he's out caring for the garden on the other end. You know, he's, on, he's far away. Maybe he's walking with God somewhere else in the garden and having a, a devotional time with the Lord. Where is he? Let me ask you, when you typically picture the fall in this scene that we see depicted, you know, in little cartoon characters and stuff, where do you personally picture Adam to be when you think about the fall? Have you ever really thought about it? Well, the thing is, the text tells us where he is. Look back at verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband after tracking him down on the other side of the garden. Is that what it says? Where was he? With her. And she gave to her husband with her. I don't know about you, but that reaches out and grabs me by the throat. The insinuation of the text, I, I think it's right for us to assume from the, the simplicity of the way that this is written that Adam was standing there the whole time. That he heard the conversation. Now go back and replay the conversation that Eve had with, with the serpent and now picture Adam standing next to her listening to the entire thing. Questioning God. Twisting God's words. And Adam just stands there. Remember, this mandate, as we read earlier, the reason I went back to chapter 2 is because I wanted us to see that Adam received the mandate first before Eve was ever even created. In chapter 2, verses 7 to 9, the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground, breathed life into him, 
And then in, in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, he takes him, puts him in the garden, and he commands him, verse 16, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. This is the mandate given to Adam. Then God says, you need a helper. He brings Eve. That mandate then becomes both of theirs. And she's to help him in the fulfillment of the, the command that God has given to her, uh, to him. But it was his job to lead her, to protect her, and to lead out specifically in obeying the simple command that God had given to them. But when the tempter comes... He apparently stood by and willingly allowed his wife to be deceived because Peter would tell Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that it was not the man who was deceived, it was the woman. The idea is Eve was legitimately tricked and deceived into sin by Satan. Adam was not. That is, Adam knew. Adam knew that what the servant was saying was wrong and he didn't do anything about it. He didn't protect his wife. He didn't stand firm in the faith. He didn't protect God's character and speak up and say, "Uh, that's not my God. That's not what God said to me. And men, here's the truth that I want to drive home to us this morning. The same temptation plagues us today. The same temptation to stand by and to be lazy. to, To allow our wives to be the primary spiritual voice in our homes to allow our, our wives to be the one that's most concerned about having Bible time with the kids and making sure that we have protections for the influences coming into our homes. Far too often, when, when the church has a, a new Bible study or a new thing, far too often it's the women rushing the gates to be taught to, to follow harder after the Lord, and it's the men on the sidelines that the women are dragging along with them. You know, far too often... Um, this this doesn't this is not always the case, but it, it it's always a, a a red flag to me when I'll have folks come and, and visit the church and we're talking and the wife is the one doing all the talking. She's done all the research. She's listened to all the messages. Uh, she's she knows why that we need to come to this church, and the guy is just kind of where is he, right? And 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 unfortunately this happens far too often it's it's easy for us as men to fall into the temptation to just let our wife lead and the truth is and let me let me be clear of what i'm saying and what i'm not saying i'm not saying that our wives aren't to be godly people i'm not saying that our wives aren't to have a huge influence on our kids in the home they are they should be teaching them the bible and shepherding them that we're at work they should be doing those things i'm not saying that that your wife may not be uh smarter than you, frankly. She may have the ability to read and grasp things a lot faster than you. She may be able to memorize scripture faster than you and retain theological truth faster than you. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about, are we disciplining ourselves to be godly men so that our wife could follow our patterns of discipline and grow in her faith? Or is she kind of out there on an island, always pushing, always the one prodding? Hey, do you think we could pray together? Hey, you think we could read the Bible together? Hey, you think you could talk to the kids maybe about this thing? Oh, yeah, sure, I'll make time for that. Is it always our wives that are dragging us along instead of us getting out in front and leading by example? And so this is why this matters. It matters because I believe that... You're here because you want 
to be a leader in your home. You want to be pushing your wife to grow and be an example for your kids. And many of you are, okay? We have faithful, faithful men in our church. I'm not (laughs) giving a wholesale condemnation of of every man. Um, What I'm trying to do is help us all see the, the warning of Adam's passivity and not to give in to that. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> we need one another to hold fast in these things. Acts 16, 13, 14 says, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now that's a passage that's read at many a men's retreat, and far too often when we When we exposit this, we hear illustrations and stories that sound more like we need to be like John Wayne or Jason Bourne than Jesus Christ, right? Be strong gets interpreted into have lots of guns and be able to use them well. Now, I like guns, and um, you can have them, and I like to use them well too, but that's not what this means. This is a call to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, to be strong in the faith, to be men who will stand firm on the faith and will not yield. And when the tempter comes for our family and the influences of the world seek to influence our family, we're the first voice to say, not here, not happening here. And leading our family in the truth. We're the first voice to say, hey, let's pray about that. We're the first voice to say, you know what, let's pick up the word and see what does the Bible say that we ought to do about that. This is what it is to act like men, to stand firm, to be strong, to do everything in love. Think about the way that God has set up leadership in life. Think about First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. As you read those, it's just this constant uh, cycle of kings, and the nation ebbs and flows by the character of the king. Does it not? It starts with the name of the king, and the next thing it'll tell us is if he was godly or not. And when there's a godly king. The nation follows. When there's an ungodly king, the nation follows. Think about in the church. In the church, the health and the longevity of the health of the church starts with the leadership. Some of you have been a part of churches that have fallen apart, unfortunately. And almost always, that fracture starts the leadership level. So the same thing happens in the home. When you have humble, faithful, godly leadership... In the husband, that affects the marriage relationship, which affects the kids in the home and affects the whole household. doesn't mean you have a perfect household. None of us do. But God has set it up this way, so we ought to expect it to work that way. Now, let me talk about this. I want to hear from you. What are some of the circumstances that tempt us to shrink back from leading our wives and our children according to the Scripture? What are some of the circumstances that can tempt us to be quiet when we know we should lovingly speak truth? Give me some examples. Supporting conflict. Yes, I have that one here. Uh, The idolatry of a peaceful home, right? You ever had the thought process, you know, work is hard. I work all day. Some of you have difficult jobs. You deal with difficult people. Work feels like a battle all day. I don't want to come home to a war. I want to come home to peace. And so what can happen is we make an idol out of a peaceful home to the point that we come home and the goal is just to do whatever will keep everybody happy. Right? Instead of saying, no, the goal is to do whatever the Scripture says. Lovingly, graciously, with kindness, but holding the line. Right? 
What else? Maybe a feeling of spiritual inadequacy. Yeah, absolutely. A fear, a feeling of spiritual inadequacy. You know, I just, I don't know enough. I didn't go to seminary. I didn't. You don't have to go to seminary to be a leader in your home. In fact, like I said, <clears throat> some of you, God has gifted you with a wife that's extremely intelligent and very studious and likes to read. And you come home from work and she's read Grudem's Systematic Theology three times, right? And you're like, whoa, how can I keep up with this? <clears throat> you don't have to be a, a master theologian to be a leader in your home. And so we're, we're going to talk more about what that looks like even as we work through things this year. What are some other things that tempt us to, to zip our lips when we ought to lovingly lead it with truth? Particularly tempted to sin. We yeah. I want to lead our wives in it because we also struggle with it. Yeah, that one's on my list too. Patterns of personal sin. Sometimes the issue is we have damaged our credibility with our wives because we know we've not lived as men of character in the home. That can show in a whole different, uh, all different realms. It could be a problem with anger, it could be a problem with pornography or something like that. But this happens often where you know what to say but you realize you've lost your voice with your wife because she knows the truth about your character. So we're going to work on that too. It's part of the reason we're going to do the book that we're going to do, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Any others? Other ideas on reasons, temptations not to speak? The work involved in getting engaged with it? Yeah. I have... Selfishness and physical fatigue. So this probably goes under both of those. You ever come home and just be tired and be like, I'm ready to be done now? You ever feel like that? Am I the only one that ever felt like that? Come on, don't leave me hanging. Right now, some of you are like, I'm, I'm trying to stay awake in this moment. Um, and so that physical fatigue, uh, when you come home, it becomes a temptation. Am I going to be selfish and give in to that? Or am I going to push through and realize I have a ministry at home and I need to now engage in that ministry? Sometimes it's that you had a plan that evening of what you wanted to do. Watch the game. It could even be a, fa- a plan with the family. You want to come home and do a family game night or do something fun. You come home and there's a disaster at home and you're like, well, uh, I need to go get the oil changed. Just remember, right? These are all the things that tempt us towards passivity in marriage and home life. And this is why we need each other. Because, as you know, Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And here's what happens. <clears throat> Especially when we're dealing with sin, when the issue is personal patterns of, of sin, the temptation is to recoil and to isolate ourselves. And to say, you know what, I, I know I need to be a part of things in the church, but I just need to work on me first. And once I get you know, this under control... Um, then I will re-engage. And that's backwards. It's completely backwards. You, you don't get sharp if you're not ever rubbing against another piece of iron. And so what I want to create is a regular meeting like this where we have a chance to come together and push each other lovingly to come alongside. How can I pray for you? What are you struggling with? Well, 
I need to read the word. It's just always been a struggle for me. All right, I'm going to text you tomorrow. What time are you getting up? So let's text each other. What do we read? Uh, let's go. You know, uh, what, what do you, what do you, I need to have this conversation with my wife, but I don't know how to go about it. Well, let's talk about it, and I'm going to hold you accountable. It's it, like we need each other in our life to sharpen each other, and so that's what this time is going to primarily be about. So let me explain how that's going to happen. If you have your, your calendar there, your sheet, let me walk through my plan here. I've tried to uh, think of how to do this in a way that fits well with the other things we have going on in church life. I don't want to take away from other things that we're already doing, and I don't want to create something that's easy to, uh, <coughs> to get lost in. So we're going to follow the same calendar as the small group calendar. That way you know if I had small group this week, I have men's discipleship this week. If I didn't have small group this week because we were off, then we're off for men's discipleship. And that way it's, it's always super easy. And the goal really is we're, we're not going to cancel. So if, if there is a date on the calendar, just come. If I have to be out or something, someone will be here to teach that lesson, but we will meet. So if it's on the calendar, plan to come. So for example, today is September the 7th. Uh, and this is day one. I'm going to go over the study process here in a second that, that's listed there. Next time would be next week, and then the following week after that. But then it's reach week, so we're off. So if it says reach, that means we don't meet. If it says off, of course, that means we don't meet. On small group calendars, the way that works is if there's a fifth week, uh, we don't meet on those weeks because it gets wonky with some groups will have met, some groups won't have met, and um, so we take those weeks off. So if it says off, it's because it's a fifth week and we're just following the small group calendar. Um, also, there's time in there for holiday breaks and things like that. We try to be sensitive to when we may be traveling and those kinds of things. But take this with you, and the way that I've organized it in my brain, hopefully this works as well as I think it will work, but... I think there are multiple things that we all need as men. One, we need to be men of the Word. We need to be Psalm 1 kind of men that love the Word of God and meditate on it day and night. So to help us with that, we're going to study through Psalm 119 this year. And we're going to take it slow. And you'll notice on there, for example, the first time that we'll get to it is on the 5th of October. And we're, just, we're going to take two pericopes, that two units of thought, from Psalm 119, you'll notice Psalm 119 is arranged by the Hebrew alphabet. So it would be Aleph and Bait would be the first, um, the first day, verses six, 1 to 16. And on those days, what I want you to have done is to come and have studied that passage so that you have something to offer in conversation. And to help you with that, on the back side of your sheet, I have a Psalm 119 study process. And all I've done, if you've been a part of the teaching seminar, is I took the first several steps of the study process and I pasted them here. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is to follow these 14 steps. And you can add more, but at least follow these 14 steps. And it will help you, if you've never really studied the Bible in depth, it will help you begin to get a handle on, hey, how do I dig into the text myself? And how do I learn and grow? And so just follow those steps, and it will it'll help you a lot to come ready with some notes in hand to where we can have a discussion. Because what I want to do is each time there will be a time like this where there's formal teaching, if you will, um, that I intend to be interactive, even more, interac- more interactive than it was today, but we're just setting things up. 
but also at the uh, at the end i want to have time every every meeting to break up into groups for accountability for discussion so when you come while i'm teaching through that section on psalm 119 i intend for it to be more of not just a lecture but hearing from you and what you learned and discussing those things so i'd like you to have something to bring to the table and then that will also be part of your discussion time as you break into groups um so that's there for you that's a resource and I, I thought <coughs> this would be a great time also just to keep practicing the same memorization that we're doing for small groups. So I don't have a separate memory plan for men's discipleship. Instead, I want us to hold each other accountable to memorize the things that we're already supposed to be memorizing as a church. Because my goal for this is not for this to become your small group, but for it to become something that motivates us as men to be leaders so that we're better participants in our small group, so that we're the guys that are, are, are speaking up and we're encouraging the other men and we're coming alongside and we're saying, hey, I'll memorize that with you. This is to help us uh, to do that more effectively. So on those weeks where it's Psalm 119, the passage will be listed uh, and just follow that study process. The goal is that you're doing that sort of throughout the month. Uh, we'll only do Psalm 119, one of the meetings of the month. And so if you do a little bit each week, then you'll have plenty to offer when we come to the actual day. On the second meetings of the month, which would be next time, we're gonna be, I'm going to be covering topical issues of common heart sins that we all deal with. So like, for instance, next Thursday, we'll be talking about discontentment. I know that's not a sin you deal with, but maybe invite someone who does. Um, but So we'll talk about what does the Scripture say about that sin. So the second meetings of the month will be more topical, but even those, while I'll be teaching, uh, there'll be time at the end for us to, to gather and to work through that and to apply it. And then finally, the third thing that we'll be doing is going through the book Passions of the Heart. It's this book here. If you don't have it, we've got them at the bookstore. You can order it on Amazon if you prefer the Kindle version. They've got that. And what I want you to do is, again, we're only going to talk about the book once a month. <clears throat> so one chapter a month really is not a tall order. You can do it. And just if you're reading a little bit all throughout the month, you'll be ready to go on the day we discuss this. On those days, I will come and give a short message on whatever the key biblical theme of that chapter is. But then especially on those days, I plan to a lot more time than normal even to break into groups. Uh, and for this book, I'm planning to put you in the same group each time so that you can hold each other accountable and really help each other to grow. And in that group, at the end of each chapter, there are discussion questions. And we'll go through, they're already here, here in the book. We'll go through those discussion questions in small groups to really hold each other accountable. And let's, let's just be honest, men. Pornography is a pervasive issue, not just in the world. It's a pervasive issue in the church. It's a pervasive is issue for men in general. And so this is not a time to, to come together and act as if we're reading this and discussing it for those people out there. This is a time for all of us to, A, admit that lust in general is a temptation for every man. And we need, we need the tools to deal with that. And if, honestly, if you're dealing with the sin of pornography, tell that to your group and say, guys, this is a struggle that I have and I want to kill it. Help me to kill it. I want to encourage you that this book, it's a great book. It's, it's, that's why we've chosen it. It's really helpful on sort of what's going on in the heart that's tempting us to give in to this sin. But it's just a book. 
In the same way that if, if you came and you wanted to lose 20 pounds and I gave you a book on diet, if you just read the book, are you going to lose 20 pounds? Nope. But if you do what the book says, you will. That's the idea here. The book is not a magic rabbit's foot. It is to guide you to the scriptures, but then you've got to put off, renew your mind, and put on and do the hard work. And by God's grace, you can and must kill the sin of pornography. Hear me. Hear me. You can and you must. If you're dealing with that sin, it will ruin your life. It will ruin your marriage. And God, if you're a Christian, has put the Holy Spirit in you and given you a new nature, and you can walk in holiness and never look at pornography again. And that is our goal, but we need each other to sharpen one another and to walk in that. So this book is to help facilitate that conversation. If you haven't gotten it, please pick it up and read it. Um, But that'll be the flow. Three meetings a month on most months unless there's a holiday. First meeting, Psalm 119. Second meeting, a topical issue of the heart. Third meeting, walking through the book. And we'll just walk through that schedule, okay? Any questions about the schedule or how that works? Okay, good. Either I was clear or you're being shy. I'm not sure.